Well, life is full of choices. Uh, th- this morning, you decided whether to get up early. Well, you didn't. <laughs> or sleep in after losing an hour of sleep. I actually had that written for the first service. Uh, whether to eat breakfast or not, what to eat for breakfast, caffeinated or decaf. I'm not sure there's a decision there. Whether to go to church or not. The, the 815, the 945, or the 1115 service. Whether to go out for lunch, and if so, where? I don't know about you, but that is always the biggest challenge for my family. We go out on Sundays, but where? No one wants to make that decision. Then when we get there, what to choose from the menu? Then when we get home, to nap or not to nap? Again, not sure there's the decision there. Greenway to walk or to run, or ride on the parkway, or railroad grade. There's just so many choices. When I was in the business world many years ago, my job required regular meetings with bank customers, lunch meetings, for example, almost every day. Sometimes I would actually schedule two lunches in one day, one at 11.30 and one at 1. That may sound like fun, but trust me, eating out every day, boring. I knew what was on every menu. In fact, I played this little game. I I would wait for my guests to order and then say, that sounds good. I'll have what he's having. At least it would be a surprise. Of course, I always had a backup in case he ordered something like, I don't know, salad. (laughs) Life is filled with choices every day. Some are more significant than others. Some actually carry eternal consequences. I'm reminded when the children of Israel finally made it to the land of promise. You may remember they spent over 400 years in Egypt, were delivered by Moses, and and made their way to the land. Moses sent in 12 spies. When they returned, two said, let's go. Ten said, no way. To whom did they listen? They had a choice to make, and you know they listened to the (laughs) ten, because the majority isn't always right. So so they were made to wander in the wilderness for those 40 years. One year for every day they spied out the land. But finally, finally the time came. Joshua led them in conquest of the land. You can read about it in the first 12 chapters of of the book of Joshua. Uh, The next 12 largely talk about the division of the land. But then you get to chapter 24, the last chapter, and Joshua is, is about to die. So he gives this moving farewell speech, one with it at least part that you're familiar with because it is in plaques in Christian homes all around the world, maybe even in your home. Choose for yourselves today or choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How many of you have seen that on a plaque? Yeah, most of us. Make a choice. Will you serve the Lord or not? Now, the the context of that verse actually makes it even even better. The, The Israelites said, Again, largely conquered the land and, and divided it. Sure, there, were, there was more to do. There were a few areas of, uh, of resistance that needed to be conquered. But besides all of that, there was this, there remained this little challenge of, of idolatry. <laughs> Unbelievable. God had shown himself mighty, shown himself faithful to them, and they were still clinging to useless blocks of wood and hunks of metal. So Joshua's 
speech that day actually went like this. He started with what God would say to them. Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Now this is God speaking. From ancient times, your fathers lived beyond the river, that is the Euphrates, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served um, other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, multiplied his descendants. I even gave him Isaac. To, to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau, I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But, but Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. We know this. And then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in the midst and in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. We know that story too. We just looked at it. And Hebrews 11, but when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them, covered them, your eyes, saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for, for a long time, well, 40 years. But finally, finally, you crossed the Jordan. You came to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you and the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Gergesite, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. I gave them, don't miss it, I gave them into your hand. Then I sent a hornet before you. And it drove out the two kings of the Amorites on the east side of the Jordan. Remember Sihon and Og and, and from before you, but not by your sword or, or your bow. I did it. I gave you a land which you had not labored, cities which you had not built, and you have lived in them, and you are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. I did all of that. That's God's part of, of the speech. But now Joshua speaks... Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose, here it is, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which are beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord." Can you believe it? Now, we, we don't have that middle part of the verse uh, on the plaque too much to read or maybe too negative. But it's important for the context. After all, after all that the Lord had done for them, they were still carrying around the gods of their forefathers from beyond the Euphrates, the gods of the Egyptians, even the Amorites. And, and Joshua now said, make a choice. Decide. Choose today whom you will serve. <laughs> you see, that always seemed to be a problem for this nation. It's why we have the awful book of Judges following the book of Joshua. It's why centuries later, they went into captivity. And yet, all along, God promised God promised to redeem them. There would come a seed of the woman who, who would crush the serpent's head. There would come a descendant of, of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. There would come a descendant of David who would sit on David's throne forever. A seed of the woman, a seed of Abraham, a seed of, of David. And he would be the anointed one. He would be the Messiah. And he came, but they largely missed him. But not everybody. Good news. We have found in our study of Hebrews... Some believed, and it was costing them. We have found that this book was written to largely Jewish believers who had believed in Jesus, but were now facing severe persecution. And as a consequence, unbelievable. 
They, they, they were considering quitting and returning to Judaism, leaving Jesus and returning to the old covenant. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The author writes to both encourage and frankly to warn them. And as we arrive in, at our text in Hebrews 12, his encouragement is to choose Jesus and, and, and the new covenant he brought. To, to not return to the old covenant. Because as he has been arguing through the book, there, re, there remains no sacrifice for sins. There, Jesus has come. And, it, and, and he and he alone is the way to be reconciled to God. Why, why would you leave? He and he alone is the way to forgiveness and eternal life. You cannot return there there's nothing there. Make a choice. Will you decide? Now he highlights the significant differences between the old and, and new covenants. There is a sense in which he summarizes everything that is already Sad, And in fact, I told Michael before the first service, he's actually going to just kind of, in a few verses, preach the entire book of Hebrews. And some of you say, well, why didn't you do that? Well, I didn't want to. <laughs> but it's so important, he says it again. Now, make no mistake about it. God, God brought the old covenant. But with the coming of Christ, per Old Testament promises, the old covenant has been made obsolete. His word obsolete. Jesus has fulfilled all the types to which the old covenant pointed. There remains no life. There remains no hope there. So now the author contrasts very clearly the two covenants. And in doing so, listen, we find some of the most encouraging words in the letter. Look at what you have in Jesus. Now, of course, our problem is not the attraction to return to Judaism. We were never there, were we? But where were we? Our problem is much the same. Because of the challenges of being a follower of Jesus, the temptation is to quit, to leave. Is this, is this really worth it? We've been asking that question over and over Again, is, is this worth it? If you are asking yourself that question, if this is true for you, listen to this great text found in Hebrews 12, verses 18 and following, which say this. For you have not come. Keep that phrase in mind, because he's going to tell us what we have come to. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words which sound was such that the, those who heard it begged that no other word be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And you say, I thought you said this was encouraging. It is, hold on. You didn't come there. But you have come to, to, uh, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels and to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood 
of Abel. Do you see? Do you see the contrast he is drawing? He contrasts the old covenant, specifically how it was given at Mount Sinai and the new covenant found at Mount Zion. He's encouraging them by reminding them what the old covenant brought and what the new covenant brought. Look at what you have. Now again, our challenge is not the call of Mount Sinai. But what mountains of the world call to you right now? What is it you're tempted to follow? What is it right now that's, more, that's, that's vying for your attention, that's more important than, than Jesus? This is the call of another religion and its empty promises. This is the call of the, the, the wealth and pleasures of our culture constantly bombarding you. This is the call of success and the symbols of success. Great job, great salary, great bank account, nice house, picket fence, two-car garage with nice two cars. What is it that is competing for your affection and your devotion? Let's look at what you have in Jesus. The outline is really quite simple. It looks like this, the old covenant of Mount Sinai and then the new covenant of Mount Zion. Now notice the author says, you, he's talking to us, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. The Israelites did. Yeah, yeah that's right, they did. He, he, he's talking about when they came to Mount Sinai after their escape from Egypt. They came and that's where God gave them the law. It was a rather ominous event. We read about it in Exodus and Deuteronomy. In Exodus 20, for example, God has just finished giving Moses the Ten Commandments, and we read, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And They, they said to Moses, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Is that your covenant? I don't want to talk to God. The Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. You shall not make other gods beside me, gods of silver or, or gods of gold. You shall not make for yourself. That, this seems to be a recurring theme, a, a repeated command. Don't follow false gods. God has revealed himself. Follow him that way. Huh. I wonder what the point is. People there, they saw the things the author of Hebrews talked about 40 years later when Moses is preparing the Israelites to finally enter the land. He recalls this event in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens. Darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Are you encouraged? Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire and you heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That, that is the Ten Commandments. Now do them. And, and, he, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might perform them in the land where you were going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form, uh, on, the day, uh, form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb. That's another name for Sinai. From the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of anything. There it is again. This keeps popping up everywhere, all through the Old Testament. 
the point is that there is only one true and living God. That does not make us arrogant. It is true. And he has revealed himself. First through the old covenant. But now ultimately, as this book began a long time ago, uh, in these last days he's spoken to us in son, through his son. And he has made it perfectly clear that he will not tolerate idolatry. I want to say very gently, but very clearly, you cannot call yourself a Christian and believe in the God of the Bible and believe in Jesus and believe that it doesn't matter whether or not you believe in Jesus. That you can believe in another God and you'll be fine. You cannot do that and call yourself a Christian because the scripture is clear. So years ago, um, pastors of our church were invited to a to a luncheon um, at the hospital. Um, and we went because at the luncheon we were told they were going to give us a little sticker that we could put on our car that would allow us to park in those two places right out front called clergy parking. We went. I wanted the sticker. <laughs> and as the chaplain at the hospital l- l- led in prayer. I I know her. She's not a Christian, doesn't profess to be one. She led in prayer. She gets to the very end and she says, and we pray in the name of the one who goes by many names. I almost got up and left, but I wanted the sticker. There's Yes, God has many names in the scripture, but he is not the God of many religions, was her point. He will not tolerate idolatry. In these verses, there are seven things the author says accompany the giving of the law at Sinai. We will review them very quickly. First, you have... You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. That is, under the old covenant, they did... The idea is it was physical. Second, there was blazing fire. Both Exodus and Deuteronomy talk about fire on the mountain. Run, boys, run. So they did. Third, there, was, there is darkness. So I want you to note the fear and trembling this event brought. The people were scared to death. They told Moses, you talk to God and tell us what he says. We cannot approach him. This whole awesome event as well as the whole setup that we've seen in the tabernacle and later the temple spelled one thing God is holy he is other and he is unapproachable you can't get close to him fourth there was gloom a word which intensifies the foreboding experience see this experience did not bring hope and joy the sense in which it brought only dread and gloom Fifth, there was a whirlwind that speaks of a mighty howling wind stirring up the dirt around them. Again, a terrifying event. Sixth, there was a blast of a trumpet, likely referring to the shofar, a, a ram's horn. But th- th- this was a loud peal of thunder, so loud that a couple million people could hear it and trembled. And seventh, there was the sound of words. We're not sure if they understood the wor- words, but they were clearly words, and we remember 
that those words came out of the gloom and the darkness such that they begged Moses that God speak not directly to them lest we die. Are you encouraged? At this awesome theophany, that is an appearance of God, giving of the law, there was great fear. They felt it, they saw it, they heard it. They could not bear the command, don't break through and touch the holy mountain. If you do, you will be killed. And if an animal happens to wander off and touches the mountain, you gotta stone it. Again, this whole event spoke, here it is, this whole event, God comes down, whole events, no access, don't even come near. You can't approach God. So terrible was the sight, even Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Now, this is a bit challenging. We don't read of Moses being afraid when we read the Old Testament narratives, but the author seems to be thinking of another event found in Exodus chapter 32, which was also on the mountain. Moses had gone up to the mountain to receive the law. God gave him the Ten Commandments written by his very finger on two tablets of stone. But while he's still on the mountain, God told him that people were sinning greatly. They had created a, a golden image, an idol of a false god. And God is so angry, he is about to destroy them. When Moses tells the story in Deuteronomy 9, 40 years later, again, preparing the people to go into the land, he says this, I fell down before the Lord. And then, as at the first 40 days and nights, I neither ate bread nor drank water because all of your sin, which you have committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was wrathful against you in order to destroy you anybody who says that God is not a wrathful God has never read the Bible here's the point when they turn from the true God to follow a false God one that they had fashioned one they had created, this is our God. What mountains of the world are calling out to you? This is our God. Moses was afraid. He remembered the terror at the giving of the law of Mount Sinai, the first three commandments of which say, you will have no other gods before me, no taking my name in vain, no graven images. Moses was afraid because they'd already broken the law. He was fearful of the hot anger and wrath of God. But don't miss it. Our author says to his readers, which includes us, you have not come to this mountain. You have not come to Sinai. You have come to a different mountain, Mount Zion, Point two, verses 22 to 24. Mount Zion was a city of the Jebusites which David took in the seventh year of his reign. It became known as the city of David. There Jerusalem uh, was built uh, as well as on Mount Moriah right next to it which became the temple mount. The two of them together became Jerusalem. But together they became known as Mount Zion. Read through the Old Testament, you'll see a number of times that Jerusalem is referred to as Mount Zion, the city of the great king. That's where we've come. But here, the author is not talking about, don't miss it, he's not talking about a physical city. No, he's talking about the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's a contrast. 
Just as he spoke of seven things in the giving of the old covenant, he speaks of seven things that are found here in the new covenant. First, you have come to Mount Zion, city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Right away, we begin to understand he's not talking about an earthly city. You you don't have to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And we are reminded, we we are looking forward to a city with foundations, meaning it's unshakable, whose architect and builder is God. It is the city, he says, of the living God, which means he lives there. Yes, there's a sense in which when the tabernacle was erected, when the temple was built, there was the Ark of the Covenant in there with the two cherubim. There's a sense in which God dwelt there especially with his presence. But listen, that was just a type pointing to heaven. That's where he is. Yes, he's omnipresent, but he's got a special presence there. That's where we're going it's the city of the living God what the apostle Paul calls the Jerusalem that is above and by the way I might just add it it will not always be above you see in Revelation chapter 21 see I do read the book of Revelation Revelation chapter 21 we read these words then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem Coming down out of the heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to what God says. Remember what he, wait, remember, remember what he said at Mount Sinai when the voice came from the mountain? Look what he says now. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. No longer is it no access. Stay away. You can't come here. He will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. Do you see this is where we are headed? And and notice, we will dwell with God. He will no longer be separate, aloof, transcendent, unapproachable. Not that he has changed. Oh, no. But we have changed. We have been redeemed, purified through the work of his son so that we are now fit through the work of Christ to live in his presence, for him to be our God and for we to be his people. No more fire. No more darkness, no more gloom, no more terror. Do you see the contrast? Second, we have come to myriads of angels. Myriad speaks of thousands upon thousands. It originally meant 10,000, came to mean a countless number. Deuteronomy 33, very interesting, says that countless angels attended God at the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Huh. That added to the terror. Remember the scene there. But here we see that we gather with countless angels. Now, the point is, is in the presence of God in the New Jerusalem, there there are lots of angels. In Daniel's vision of the Ancient of Days, we see that there were um, thousands upon thousands of angels serving him. But but we are told that the angels are there in joyful. Unfortunately, that, that phrase is in the first part of the next verse. In my translation, that's a mistranslation. It should be at the end of this one. They're there in joyful or festive assembly. It speaks of a festive occasion or celebration here to honor God. Here's what I want you to get. There is great joy unlike Sinai. There is great joy in the presence of God and his his angels. That's what's waiting for you. Third, we have come to the church of the firstborn. We are part of the church which belongs to God. The word firstborn is used to speak of Jesus, which speaks first in rank. But here the word is in the plural. Likely refers to the truth that we belong to the assembly, the church, of all of those who belong to God through the work of Christ and are thus therefore sons and daughters of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's incredible. You right now, if you know Jesus, you are a co-heir, firstborn. 
with Christ. That's crazy. We see further the names, our names, are enrolled in heaven. We're in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 21, Revelation 13, Luke chapter 10. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life, written from the foundation of the world. Fourth, we see we have come to God himself. Do you see that? Again, in contrast, in contrast to the old covenant where only the high priest could come. We have come to God, judge of all. Under the old covenant, access to God was restricted. But here in the new covenant, we have access to God. We've been told over and over throughout this book to draw near to God. He keeps saying, draw near, draw near. You don't have to stay with Come near. Throne of grace. Yes, he is the judge of all, but we have received Jesus, and we need not fear his judgment. Our judgment, you see, has been laid. We just sang about it. Our judgment has been laid on Christ. Fifth, we have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's a strange phrase. Lots of discussion. But most agree this is referring to all those under the old covenant and the new covenant who have been made perfect because of the work of Christ. Those who are now in heaven, in the presence of God, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, spiritual people awaiting their future resurrection, which is the first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20. That's the third time I've mentioned the book of Revelation. We remember from the last verse of chapter 11 that those in the hall of faith were not made perfect apart from us, those who believe in Christ and his work on the cross. You see, the author um, has argued the old covenant made no one perfect. the, The old covenant needed its fulfillment, the work of Christ, and needed us. Six, this brings us incredibly to we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant been saying this over and over in chapter 7 and 8 Jesus mediated a better favorite word better covenant than the old quoting Jeremiah 31 and he in chapter 8 he called it a new covenant calls it a new covenant again in chapter 9 here's the point the new covenant is better the new covenant is better because it is the fulfillment of all the old covenant promise and to which it pointed and it was and it gave what the old covenant listen it gave what the old covenant could never give Forgiveness of sin and perfection. If that is true, and it is, why would you go back to the old covenant? And I would ask further, if forgiveness and perfection is found in Christ alone, why would you leave? Seventh, how are we perfected and forgiven we have come to sprinkled blood. Sprinkled blood. Infinitely greater than the blood of bulls and goats, which could never take away sin for good. We have come to the very blood of Christ. Which brings us finally, we see that it, lastly, is better than the blood of Abel. What, what does that mean? Well, besides taking us back to the beginning of chapter 11, and the first one named... Remember when Cain killed him, Abel's blood cried out. But here's the question. What did Abel's blood cry out for? Divine justice. Jesus' blood met the demands of divine justice and therefore provided forgiveness for us forever. That's why it's better. 
So while our author does not ask his readers to make a choice like Joshua of old, clearly this is his concern. Joshua said, will you choose the false gods of Egypt and the nations around you, or will you choose to serve the Lord? Our author, writing to Jewish believers, says in essence, make a choice. Will you choose the, listen carefully, will you choose the paralyzing terrors of Sinai or the extraordinary joys of Zion? It's like caffeinated or decaf. There's no decision there. Will you choose terror or joy? Will you choose the old covenant where you had no access to God? He's been saying it over and over. The old covenant, his types, never made his followers perfect. That awaited the fulfillment, the coming of Christ. The blood of animals uh, of the old covenant could never take away sin forever. Uh, they, They simply pointed to the blood of Jesus, the better blood, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Make a choice. Who will you follow? The empty promises of this world, the empty promises of this world's false religions, even the old religion of Judaism, now obsolete, which denies Jesus. Will you return to that terror or to any religion of hopelessness? Or will you follow Christ and inherit extraordinary joy? Stunning joy. 